familiar, although I hope not overly familiar, with daytime talk shows. So the following scenario might be recognisable to you. The programme is titled Affairs. And it begins characteristically with a husband, in this case, who is accusing his wife of cheating on him. And she is adamant that it's all in his imagination. Indeed, she makes her sworn profession that she is faithful to him. But she has one problem. Because earlier on in the day, they have rigged her up to a lie detector test. And an expert has plied her with hard questions whilst checking her blood pressure, her pulse, and her respiration. And now, like some kind of drama, they open the envelope to reveal the result. And it is not good news. You've professed to be faithful, says the host, but you're lying. Now, strange as it may seem, that kind of situation is not unlike something which happened two and a half thousand years ago during the ministry of Jeremiah. It wasn't recorded, of course, on a TV show, but it was written down in the prophecy, which we've been studying in recent weeks, under the title, Living in Hope. As we discover this morning, that the people of Judah, the Lord's bride, have professed their undivided loyalty to him. No doubt if anyone had inquired, do you love the Lord? Are you faithful to him? They would have sworn it. However, the Lord who is the one true God now opens the envelope and he says to his people, you have proclaimed faithfulness to me, but your profession is a sham. You follow false teachers, you harbor false hopes, you worship false gods. And no less this morning, the Lord places the lie detector, his word of truth, onto our hearts. And he questions us, is our profession to him true or false? Let's turn together to Jeremiah chapter 8 this morning. We're actually covering chapters 8 through 10. It's quite a challenge and we can't go into every detail, nor can we read every verse. But Jeremiah chapter 8 should give us a sample flavor this morning. Jeremiah chapter 8. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers 
so that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Beware of your friends. Do not trust your brothers. For every brother is a deceiver and every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend. And no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do because of the sin of my people? And then down to verse 12. What man is wise enough to understand this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? The Lord said, it is because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the bowels as their fathers taught them. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. See, I will make this people eat bitter food and drink poisoned water. I will scatter them among nations that neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will pursue them with the sword until I have destroyed them. And finally, verses 23 and 4. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Or the strong man boast of his strength. Or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. This is the word of God this morning. Let's just pray for a moment and ask that the Lord would come and grant us his help. Almighty God, we now pray that as we would come to examine your word, you would examine our hearts. Show us, Lord, both what is true and what to do in light of this text. And Lord, if this is a hard message this morning, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, it may be a hard blow which opens up hard hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't think it is a coincidence that we are continuing this morning some heavy sledding through the early part of Jeremiah. And that we've just begun our 40 days of prayer. Every day through this season, we are praying for revival in our nation. And yet, if and when revival will come, we know that it will begin with the people of God, with the church of God. That's how God works in revival. He breaks open our heart soil. 
He revitalizes and renews our love and our passion for him. And perhaps this is why we're preaching these hard messages, because the Lord uses hard implements to break open hard surfaces, hard hearts. And it's another hard-hitting challenge today. Is your profession false? Do you proclaim to know God falsely? Or is your profession at this stage in your life faltering just a little bit? And just as the lie detector uses three measurements, blood pressure, pulse, respiration, let me suggest this morning that there are three measures Three warning signs of a false profession or a faltering profession. Number one, following false teachers. See, if we don't believe the truth, more than likely we have been taught to lie. And God is very clear that false teachers are intimately involved in Judah's rebellion. Indeed, in some ways, they are the only rational explanation for Judah's irrational behavior. See, the Lord says, compare Judah's actions with some natural occurrences. When men fall down, do they not get up? Someone falls, their length falls on their face round in Princess Street. And before you can lend a hand, they've sprung back up to their feet rather embarrassed. Because normally when a man falls down, he gets up. Or when a man turns away, does he not return? When your neighbor leaves home in the morning, do you not expect him to come back in the evening? If he doesn't come home, maybe something's wrong. Because the man who leaves returns. And this isn't just human nature, says the Lord. This even happens in the animal kingdom too. Even the stork in the sky knows their appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. Even the bird who migrates comes back. So why, asks the Lord, in Judah, in Jerusalem, is there such an unnatural phenomenon? Though falling men get up, though straying men return, though migrating birds come home, Judah always turns away, clings to his seat, refuses to return. It's strange. No matter what God says, no matter what God threatens, there is no change of course. Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. No U-turn, verse 6. And there is no prickling of conscience either here. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. No one repents of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Why? Maybe you've been asking that these last weeks. Why are they so, so, so stubborn? Well, it is not the whole answer. But at least in part, it is because they have been led astray by false teachers. Led astray by the scribes. The scribes were the men who expounded and explained the Word of God. Mainly through public speaking though most influentially through writing. 
uh, pastor-teachers today may be somewhat equivalent, but most parallel, I think, would be theological professors, biblical scholars, who pen influential material that trickles down from seminary to pulpit to pew. And sad to say, in Jeremiah's day, the theologians weren't up to much. Indeed, Philip Ryken says that if they were experts in anything, they were skilled in wrongly dividing the word of truth. May it never be said of you, if you're heading into this profession with this great responsibility, never be said that you have the wrong motives. Verse 10, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Reminded me of one biblical scholar who penned a very influential work and it has sold a lot of copies, this book. And 20 years later, he was asked by one of his students, why had he written this particular book? And with a wry smile, he replied, I knew it would sell well. And it's tragic, because you see what happens when there are wrong motives in the heart. Soon, the wrong message spills out of the mouth. They dress the wind of my people as though it were not serious. And here's what they say, peace, peace when there is no peace. So, there's a gaping wound on Judah's flesh. Someone needs to call it for what it is. And the scribes, wanting their message to sell, to be palatable, put a little sticky plaster over it. And say, don't worry, it'll be fine. And by the way, beware the preacher or the writer whose only message is peace, peace, peace. When everything is about contentment and the good life, and there's nothing about sin or repentance or even the cross, it may be a peace, peace preacher you're listening to. And I know it's hard because these individuals, you notice, are actually using the Bible. They're not standing up and saying, that what I'm telling you is false. They're quoting Scripture. And so the Lord says to them in verse 8, how can you say, we are wise, for we have the law of the Lord. We're getting biblical teaching, they think. When actually the lying pen of the scribe has handled it falsely. And if you think this isn't serious, you know, some people might think that teaching isn't that important in the context of the church. Maybe there's other things that are more important. Just look at the consequences of false teaching here. The false prophets themselves will fall, verse 12. The harvest will fail, verse 13. The cities will perish, verse 14. Edinburgh needs true teachers of God's word. The land will tremble, verse 15. The godly will mourn, verse 18. And the people will lament, one and all, verse 20. And even worse, the New Testament adds, it adds that people head for eternal destruction on the basis of following false teachers. 
Maybe you're here this morning and one reason, not the only reason, but one reason that you are not a Christian yet is because you have heard false teaching. Uh, I remember hearing the testimony of a now prominent evangelical Anglican minister, Vaughn Roberts. And he was explaining how he went to church as a youngster, but it was only in his late teens that he came to faith at a Christian summer camp. He explained how he had recently calculated that he had sat through over 2,000 services in his church and never once, to his recollection, heard the gospel. And it was only when he went elsewhere that he heard this news about grace and about Christ and about the cross. See, his pastor was a peace, peace preacher. Nice morals, nice lives, nice sermons. And but for the grace of God, it would have been deadly for him. And it is for so many today. And so I say to you this morning, if that's been your experience, get under biblical preaching, which is gospel preaching. It doesn't need to be here. But wherever it is, it does need to be under those who submit themselves to the Word of God. Paul spoke of the unashamed workman who correctly handles the Word of truth to the best of his ability. And yet realize too that whatever your past experience, whatever your past experience, it can never be an excuse either. Because we find in chapter 9 that these false professors have nevertheless played their part. They are harboring false hopes. Jeremiah begins not only by lamenting the sins of the prophet, but now the sins of the people. And he begins with the sin symptoms, which he says is lying, prolific lying. Friend deceives friend. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. Judah's culture is riddled with lies, with deceitful speech, with dishonest behavior. And if you think about it, it's the only way to go when you turn away from God. He is the true God. He is truth. Any other direction is lies when a culture and a society turn from God. And could this be the case in our culture? Could this be an explanation of Scotland today? One recent survey of 4,000 Brits led to the startling uh, finding that around half of British people admit to lying on a daily basis, what they called white lies, and 83% confess to telling big, life-changing lies. Could this be true of our culture? Or closer to home, could this be true to some extent of our churches today, of the professing community of God's people? That's certainly what one evangelical, Os Guinness, suggests. He writes, with magnificent exceptions, evangelicals reflect truth decay and reinforce it. Evangelicals are attracted by movements that have replaced theology with emphases that are relational, 
therapeutic and managerial. Whatever their virtues, none of these emphasis give truth and theology the place they require in the life and thought of the disciple. I mean, how often do you hear people say, let's not get hung up on truth. What do they mean by that? What other direction is there to go but lies? But this was only the symptomatic behavior of Judah. Deceit. It's a symptom. It, it, lies are only the surface problem here because notice the deeper issue. They are distant from God. Verses 3, 6, and 24. They do not acknowledge God, says the Lord in verse 3. They refuse to acknowledge me, he adds in verse 6. And instead, they boast in their own greatness. I'm no expert in medicine, and uh, no doubt Norman or someone might correct me afterwards, but I understand there are symptoms for which there are causes, but sometimes even the causes have deeper causes. And so it is here. These people are liars. That's a symptom. Why is that? Because they're distant from God. Why is that? The root root is this. They are reliant on self. Self Self-reliant people, they boast about themselves. Look, verse 23. The Lord says to them, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. That's what they were doing. Or the strong man boast of his strength. Or the rich man boast of his riches. And these are foolish things to boast in, friends. Yet how often we do it. Let me ask you this morning, what do you boast about? You know, what you boast about tells a great deal about you. Are we going to boast in our wisdom? I read this week about a brilliant economist by the name of William Vickery. And in 1997, he was age 62, he received the Nobel Prize for Economics. It's the sort of Oscars of economic achievement. Very wise in his field, A week later, he was dead. And we boast in wisdom, fleeting wisdom. And in strength, we boast in our our might. On the radio yesterday, or maybe you saw it in the newspapers, reports, they were interviewing a, a gentleman about a banquet that took place last night. Nigel Benn and another chap, Gerald McLennan. Now, ten years ago, these guys were boxers. Ten years ago, either of these guys would have knocked you out with one punch. Strong, strong guys. You know what the meal was about? It was a reunion. Because over ten years ago, the two of them fought in the ring and left each other in a terrible way. And McLennan was going to turn up in a wheelchair. He's now deaf. He's now partially blind. And Ben was a little bit better, but he has major kidney problems now. And we, but we boast in strength. Strength which is eventually removed from us or fades. Or what about riches? Do we boast in our riches? One of the Puritans, Thomas Fuller, pointed out two problems with that. He said, number one, riches may leave us while we live. You might lose it. And two, we must leave it when we die. 
a sobering challenge. You see, these are foolish, these are false hopes. To trust in selves, to be therefore distant from God, to be therefore full of deceit. And what is the remedy to this? The remedy is so, so simple. Boast in God. You see, God is our only worthy boast. Never listen to someone who says, incidentally, boasting is wrong. That's a slightly inaccurate statement. It's only half true, really. We were created to boast. The problem is not that we boast, it's that we boast in the wrong things. We were designed to boast in God. That's what the Lord says. Let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight. Brothers and sisters, if you're a believer this morning, let me just remind you and encourage you, our God is worth boasting in. The Apostle Paul got it right, didn't he? When he said, I have lost all things, all status, all reputation, wealth probably, self-righteousness, but it is not a loss, for I have the infinite gain of knowing Christ. In fact, I'd suggest even that this is the very definition of what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? We stop boasting in ourselves and trusting in ourselves and we start to boast in Him and what He has done for us. And if we have our hope anywhere else, it's a false hope. Young people, some of you, you're getting your hopes in order at the moment. Don't waste your life. Don't fritter away your days because you have empty hopes. And empty boasts. And not only because that way of life doesn't bring satisfaction, also because God's necessary response, as we've seen again and again, is justice. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says, See, I will refine and test them, for what else can I do because of the sin of my people? Verse 7. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Shouldn't he? If God does not punish sin in some way by placing it either on the sinner who has committed the crime or on the substitute who pays the penalty and endures the penalty for the crime, then let me suggest to you, God might be God, but he is not a good God. If any human regime allows or even sponsors wicked atrocities, we don't call them good. We call them wicked. And God in his utter goodness will mete out justice on sin, one way or the other. If we refuse the grace of God, make no mistake, God is serious about judging sin. You need to get off this road of following false teachers, of harboring false hopes, and worst of all, worshipping false gods. Uh, Somebody kindly sent me the odd uh, illustration through email, and I knew this would be heavy, so I thought I'd share this to lighten the tone just a little bit. 
Uh, I love this illustration. Prince Philip, you know the queen's husband, he's actually a god. Or so some people think. Uh, According to one religion known as the Prince Philip Movement. They're on the island of Vanuatu. I mean, this is serious. They believe, amongst other gods, that Prince Philip is a divine being. Now, I don't need to tell you that that's idolatry. I don't need to tell you that that's foolish. But maybe I do need to tell you that idolatry in our culture is often much more subtle, but it is just as prevalent. As the Lord points out in chapter 10, he reminds us about the fact of idolatry. What David Wells defines as trusting some substitute for God to serve some uniquely divine function. And another writer adds that an idol can be a physical property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero. Here's the common thing. Anything that can substitute. Anything that can take God's place. That's an idol. And we might expect this among the other nations. That's why the Lord warns them in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 10. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky though the nations are terrified by them for the customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. You would expect this and we see this even in our culture, don't we? Astrology, we see that. We see the New Age movement. Uh, we see various forms of meditation, which often have intertwined with them various forms of worship of gods. And then there are the mainstream gods, aren't they? It's not wood these days, wooden idols, but it is things like prestige and fame and sex and money. And these are paraded on or televisions, and they're paraded all around us. And no doubt Israel fell into the temptation of thinking, well, this is what everyone else is doing, why can't we? So we even find idolatry among the people of God. Hammered gold is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Uphaz. Because the people are buying it in, you see. Brothers and sisters, are we buying it in? It's a very, very challenging question to ask. If someone were to examine our passions and our pastimes, the things that really give us a thrill, would we be any different from everyone else around us? Or are we consumed with all the same things that everyone else is consumed with? I'm not saying we can't have pastimes. But I am saying we can too all, all too easily make gods of them. Men, do you get more excited, let's be honest, about watching the football on a Saturday afternoon? I'm not going to say the rugby. But let's say the football. Is that more exciting and thrilling than worshipping God, meeting with Him on a Sunday morning? Ladies, where do you get the best thrill? Is it from shopping and buying all sorts of things? Or is it coming and praising the God who made all things? And there's a million other examples. It could be popular music. It could be a boyfriend, a girlfriend, who we say is everything to us. Just think about what that means. Everything. It can even be a ministry in the church. 
Even some tasks that we do can become an idol if we love the task more than we love God. And the folly of idolatry is this, two things. It produces fear because whatever we put in place of God begins to control us and it accomplishes nothing because in the end these idols are not God. They cannot provide what we would expect from God. And therefore the foil to idolatry, what is it? To stop putting things in God's place. Some of you here this morning, you're maybe not very happy people. I don't know all your problems and the intricacies of them, but it could very well be that your most basic and fundamental problem is this. You won't give God the throne of your life. And you need to say what Jeremiah affirmed. Some wonderful truths about God. I wish we had more time to study them. The Lord is God over all. He is, says Jeremiah, king of the nations. There are not several kings. There are not several gods. The Bible repeatedly affirms there is one God and there is one true king. And he is not only God over all, he is God over all because he is the creator of all. God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom. He stretched out the heavens by his understanding. Here is someone who truly is strong and truly is wise. The truth is that man didn't make God. God made man. And if this is true, if there is one God, if he is the creator of all, it logically follows that he is also the judge of all. And you know, one day, one day you won't answer to me and I won't answer to you. We will both answer personally to God. I think that's why Jeremiah prays in conclusion and readies himself for this day. I mean, what do you pray? How do you respond in light of a sermon like this? When perhaps the Lord has exposed your faults. Many of us here are well aware of our faults already. We already feel unworthy. What do you pray when he uncovers your lies? Well, you know, we can pray what Jeremiah prays. He prays for justice, but he prays for a particular kind of justice. Correct me, Lord, but only with justice, not in your anger, lest you reduce me to nothing. And this kind of justice is picked up in the New Testament. As Paul in Romans explains that Jesus died on the cross to make this sort of justice possible. Jesus bore our sins so that God could meet the demands of his justice and thereby remove his anger from us. And therefore, if we are a Christian this morning, the Judgment that we experience is more like a discipline. It's the discipline of the father who corrects his son in love. Firmly, but in love. Do you know what it is to be part of that family? To be part of God's household? To be the child of God? Or is it the other option? As Jeremiah prays for destructive justice. 
might be hard for us to try and get our heads around a prayer like this. But let me suggest to you, such is Jeremiah's sense of the worth and the justice of God that he is burdened to pray that those other nations who continually resist and shun God should be punished in his wrath. It is right. And the question that remains is this. Which camp will you be in? God is a God of justice. What kind of justice is it going to be for you? Charlotte Chapel, will we be the kind of church that God desires us to be? If so, we need to root out falsehood. We need to get real with God. And we need to come again to the foot of the cross where his justice is satisfied and where his mercy is found. Let's pray.